good to have you here again, and uh, we are going to continue in our study of John this morning. Let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll dive in. Father God, I do thank you for this morning and just the opportunity for us to be together, um, to worship you together, to sing to you together, to pray to you, um, to dive into your word together. It's good to be together. And I pray for everyone in this room this morning that they will be richly blessed by being here with each other and, and being here to worship and focus on you. And I pray for us now as we open your word and you know, we look at a very familiar story and yet a very timeless message that I think we always need to hear. And so I pray that your spirit will just impress your words upon our soul this morning and that we will hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, I want to start on what feels like a tangent, but it's actually going to tie in at some point. Um, I ran across an article this week from the Guggenheim Museum, and uh, you may have seen it. It's been around. Uh, this is a picture of an uh, art installation that was done some years ago. Um, the, uh, the museum had um, commissioned someone to build a robotic arm. And this robotic arm was given the job of uh, it would slowly leak out hydraulic fluid that represented its, its lifeblood. And, and at first it would just come out slowly and the job of the robotic arm was to scoop the, the hydraulic fluid back in and that's how it would stay alive. And over time it was programmed to leak more and more and more until eventually it couldn't keep up and it would, you know, it would die. And so people would do what they do at museums, they you know, come and stare at pictures or stare at robotic arms, and, um, right, and then they would come up with their own interpretation because it's art. So art always means, you know, whatever you want it to mean. And so this was a, a, an interpretation by a guy named uh, James Parr, and I, I wanted to read it for you. It's, it's kind of long, but I think it's pretty good. He says, no piece of art has ever emotionally affected me the way this robotic arm has. It's programmed to try to contain the hydraulic fluid that's constantly leaking out and required to keep itself running. If too much escapes, it'll die, so it's desperately trying to pull it all back to continue the fight for another day. Saddest part is, they gave the robot the ability to do these little happy dances to the spectators. And when the project was first launched, it danced around spending most of its time doing its happy dance and interacting with the crowd since it could quickly pull back just a very small amount of spillage. Many years later, it looks tired and hopeless as there isn't enough time to dance anymore. It now only has enough time to try to keep itself alive as the amount of leaked hydraulic fluid became unmanageable as the spill grew over time. Living its last days in a never-ending cycle between sustaining life and simultaneously bleeding out because figuratively, its, its hydraulic fluid was purposely made to look like actual blood. The robot arm finally ran out of hydraulic fluid in 2019, slowly came to a halt, and it died. It was programmed to live out this fate, and no matter what it did or how hard it tried, there was no escaping it. So spectators watched as it slowly bled out until the day it ceased to move forever. To say that this resonates with me somehow doesn't even do justice. So here are some extended interpretations that I've come up with, he says. Uh, the hydraulic fluid represents how we kill ourselves, both mentally and physically, for money just as in an attempt to sustain life and how the system is set up for us to fail on purpose. It also demonstrates how this robs us of our happiness, passion, and inner peace. How we're slowly drowning with more responsibilities, with more expected of us, less rewarding payoffs, and less free time to enjoy ourselves as the years go by. It could also represent how we can give and give and give and how easily we can be forgotten after we're gone. Or how we are loved and respected when we're valuable, 
and then one day we're no longer because we, we become a burden. Of course, it can also be seen to represent the human life cycle and the fact that none of us make it out of this world alive. Aren't you glad I started with that? Isn't that like, you're like, I'm so glad I came, right? When I read that, I kept thinking to myself, why does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, it sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Sounds like the so- Song of Solomon, like it's just all worthless, it's all pointless, we're all gonna die. Now, the reason I, I read that for you is because today's passage of, of Jesus walking on the water feels to me like a story of everyday life, some guys in a boat, come across a storm, and then God like bursts into their world. He bursts into uh, their lives and the endless cycle of, of problems and storms, and it's, it's God showing us that he exists, that he is there, that there's more to life than this life, that we have a creator who didn't merely create the sea, but one who can walk on that sea. And he comes walking to us on the water today in this story, and I think it's a message that we need to hear. We are not in a pointless cycle. We have a God who breaks into the world in which we live. Now, we're at a part in John where ministry has just become really busy for Jesus and his disciples, as we talked about last week. In fact, they were so busy doing ministry, it says that they didn't even have time to eat properly or to sleep. And so Jesus gets his guys together and says, we gotta get away from the crowds. Let's take a little retreat, we'll go away. And so they, they get in a boat and they're trying to get away, but the crowds follow them on the shore and they're there when they come ashore. And we have the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children we looked at last week. And at the end of that, they're so impressed with what Jesus did that they wanna make him their king. But they're not looking for a king who will come and die for their sin. They're looking for a king who will um, achieve the, the political ends, the nationalistic ends that they want for him. And so it says that he withdrew from them. And today the story moves from a crowd of thousands of people to 12 disciples in a boat going across a sea. So I want to start by talking about kind of the obvious thing, and that is we live in a world where storms happen. And I don't just mean physical storms, but I mean kind of storms that happen in our life. In verse 16, again, it's where we pick up the story, and it tells us this. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and they got into a boat, and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So there's kind of an unexpected twist to the story. Jesus has been traveling around with the disciples, and now suddenly they're in a boat, and he's not with them. And they're beginning to sail across the sea. Like, it almost feels like a setup, if you will. Now, John doesn't tell us a lot about what's going on, but Matthew fills in some of the details for us. In Matthew 14, it tells us this. Now, immediately, that is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So it says that he made the disciples. That word made in the Greek means to compel by force or persuasion. And so he basically tells them, get in the boat. Now, why is he getting them in the boat? And theories are, you know, the whole situation's become toxic, and the disciples need to get out of that situation and that crowd. And so Jesus wants to get them away. So he takes them down, puts them in a boat, pushes them off. He goes back and dismisses the crowds, and then he goes up uh, on the mountain to pray alone to be with the Father and get grounded. Everything is so busy right now, he must take time to get alone and to pray. In verse 18 of John, it says, and then the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And in Matthew 14, it kind of fills that out for us as well. 
But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So they're, they're trying to row into the wind, which if you've ever tried to do that, you'll know that's a difficult thing to do. Now they're on the Sea of Galilee. It helps to understand a little bit about what it is that they're dealing with. This is one picture, one vantage point. We know that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, and we know this is about 2,000 feet above sea level. So we got nearly 3,000 feet of change from here to here, and this area is known as becoming a wind tunnel. When winds come across the plains, they drop down, and when they hit the Sea of Galilee, which is really more like a lake, it becomes like a wind tunnel. And so it's known for these storms that come up, come up quickly, and they're, they're pretty violent. Now, some of the disciples, probably at least seven of them, are professional fishermen. So they know their way around the Sea of Galilee. They, they, they know what it's like to be on that lake when it's dark and, and to be in a storm. Uh, and they're making very little progress towards their destination. And at this point, we might ask an obvious question like, why a storm? Why would Jesus put them in this situation? And we would say, why do we face storms in life? Like now we're kind of talking spiritually, why do we face storms in life? And it's been said that there's, you know, at least three reasons why we face storms in life. Some storms that we deal with in life are of our own making, right? So oftentimes we create the storms around us or the dumb things that, that we do. Uh, speaking of which, uh, my wife has a cat. Um, this is Winston. In fact, I just found out, did you know today is Hug, National Hug Your Cat Day? Like that's not even, that, see they're just making stuff up now. But so this is our cat Winston. And Winston is always doing dumb things and then paying for it, like always. And so a couple days ago my wife was out on the deck and he's on a deck chair and she shoots this video. Actually somebody said, how in the world did she know to shoot that video? And I'm like, because she knows the cat. He almost always, so I couldn't slow it down, but let me just watch what, watch what happens as Winston just does his thing here. Okay, so, right, I couldn't slow it down. Do you want to see it again? I do. I want to see it again. I can't. So watch, this is like, check this out. <laughs> but at least, at least when he's done, the chair's back where it started, you know? But here's the thing. I show you this picture of Winston because we're a lot like that. We do dumb things. We say things. We, we act and we react in certain ways. And we create storms in our own lives. We create relational storms. We create vocational storms. We create financial storms and educational. I mean, you get the idea. Oftentimes, we do things that stir up and cause storms around us. Now, there's a, you know, I mean, we're sin, we're, we're not perfect, we sin, we make mistakes, we cause our own storms. There's a second reason, though, and that is I just, I call it just proximity, right? So we're, we're surrounded by people who also do dumb things and make bad decisions, and, and they create storms, and then sometimes those storms brew over into the house, and then we get, you ever get that, caught up in the storm? Of, you're like, I didn't cause this, I didn't, why am I in this? Because, you know, you're close to them. And in fact, I would say this, we live in a culture that is it just and storms all the time because all the dumb things our culture does. We live in a world full of storms, so sometimes we didn't do anything wrong. Um, it's just proximity, and some storms we could say are they're divinely appointed. So think about it. Why are the disciples in a storm? Because they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They were obedient. He said, "Get in this boat and sail across the lake," and it's what they did. They didn't do anything wrong. It's like Jesus is saying to them, you know, if you follow me, 
you're going to face storms in life. Like, it's, it's natural. It, you're going to encounter contrary winds, if you will, in life. You're going to be going in the opposite direction of the rest of the world, and it's going to create storms and, and friction and, and problems. It's been said in this third category of divinely appointed storms that there's at least two ways we can get in those storms. One is from running from God's will. Think of Jonah. And the second is by doing God's will. <laughs> Think of the disciples. It's almost like we're going to have storms, isn't it? In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Why would you need peace? And in the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have storms. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And storms can be a very fearful thing for us as we go through them, which takes us to the next point. And that is, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful when we're going through difficult storms in life. To the disciples, it may have felt like Jesus had forgotten them. He, he puts them in a boat, he pushes them off, he's like, adios, have fun, storm in the castle, right? And they, they're off, and, and they don't know where he is, but he's not there with them. In Mark 6, it gives us some details. It says, and he, he saw, that is, as he's up on the mountain praying, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So they left for Capernaum sometime between 6 and 9 in the evening, and the next morning Jesus comes to them during the fourth watch, which is somewhere between 3 to 6 o'clock in the morning. That is the darkest time. And people will ask the question, why would he delay? If he knows what's going on, if he knows what they're going through, why is he delaying coming to them? And I, I think my answer would be it's probably like a John 11 kind of thing. If you, uh, you know, just think forward, think about uh, Lazarus. Remember the story of Lazarus? We'll get to that in some months from now. And the sisters uh, send a message to Jesus and say, Lazarus is really sick, and Jesus knows that, you know, Lazarus is going to die if he, Jesus doesn't get there and heal him. And so Jesus doesn't go, right? And everyone's confused, like, why, why, why would you wait? Why would you delay? And Jesus waits until he knows that Lazarus is dead. Why would he do that? Because he needs to reveal something about himself. And sometimes the things that we need to learn about God are things that we can't learn until we come to the end of ourselves. When we come to the end of situations, when we come to the end of what we think we can fix and what we can do, and there's no hope left, and then God steps in and says, yeah, but not with me, right? With me, all things are possible. And so I, I don't know exactly why he waits until the last minute, but I suspect it might have something to do with that so they can see how powerful God is. Back in John chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Now when they had rode about three or four miles, because it's, it's dark and they don't have a tape measure, they, you know, they're roughly three or four miles out, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So they're about three to four miles out. The point is this, they're a long way from shore. Right? They're not anywhere near the shore. You can see the shore from where they are. And this may be why Jesus waited. He just wants them to know and impress upon them the magnitude of the miracle that they're seeing. He's not, he's not walking on the shore as some people speculated. Or he knew where there was a jetty and he was walking out on a jetty. No, he's walking on water miles from shore. Not just a few feet from the shore, which would be pretty cool as it is, but miles, think about that. They're miles away and wait. What's that? Right, Jesus is walking on the water. In Matthew 14, it says, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it is a ghost or an, an apparition in the Greek, and, and they cried out in fear. So notice, they weren't afraid of the storm. They weren't afraid of the dark. They weren't afraid of the, the waves. They're, they're fishermen. They know the way around. What, what frightens them is somebody is walking toward them 
on, on the water. So, so imagine if it's you, and, and you're out there, and it's dark, and it's windy, and it's loud, and the, you know, there's waves, and there's mist, and it's dark, and you look in the distance, and you, is that a, is that a person, right? You're like, it looks like a person. You're like asking someone, what does that look like to you, right? You're, but you don't have a category for it, right? There's no category for people walking on water, so you're, you're kind of, what, what, what is that? And, and it's getting closer, and you're like, no, I'm pretty sure that's a person walking on the water. And again, you have no category, so they're starting to be scared. They're starting to freak out as they see this thing going. As one writer said, Jesus makes a statement without any words. I mean, he doesn't have to say a thing as he walks towards them on the water. They're just going to come to some conclusions. We would call this an epiphany, that Jesus is even more than they knew, even more than they understood. He has power of the laws of nature. They have no category for this. Right? I think oftentimes, many of us, even unknowingly, we, we have a box that we put Jesus in. This is what he is, and this is how he works, and I understand him. And they had him in a box, and he got out of the box. And the, he's out of the box, and they can't figure it out. He doesn't fit in there anymore. In John uh, chapter 1, verse 3, in fact, we, it says this, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. It's just as easy for him to walk on the sea as it was to create the sea. It was just as easy for him to break the, the natural law of, of, of nature as it was to impose those laws in the first place. Back in Job chapter 9, in fact, Job says this, he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And that's exactly what's happening here. The disciples saw the creator in control of his creation. And fear is a natural response when you realize that you are in the presence of Almighty God, who in fact is so much more than you could possibly understand. You have no categories for what you are seeing. And he says to them, It is I, right? Do not be afraid. It's me. You know me. You know my shape. You know my voice. Jesus just says, Don't, don't be afraid. In the Greek, it, we would translate it, don't go on being afraid. You don't need to be afraid anymore. He's just telling them that they can trust him, that it's him. Even as they saw, even as they're looking at what they can't explain, they have, they have no category for it. Even in the midst of it, he says, you don't need to be afraid, right? As he's standing on water, telling this to them. I say that because over the years, I, I meet people sometimes, and maybe you've met people like this, probably not you, but people would just live with a vague fear all the time. They're always afraid of the next thing, you know, what's going to happen. Like, it could be a beautiful day, and the sun could be shining, and they could be sitting on a lawn chair, sipping something to drink, and the birds are chirping, and if you ask them, how's it going, they'd say, well, something's about to happen, Right? Something's about to go wrong. Like, they just live in general fear. They're always living under a dark cloud. They can't enjoy life when things are going well. This, this constant fear of uh, brewing storms. You know, something's going to happen financially, relationally, vocationally, financial. That is a, that is a statement of faith or non-faith right there. When we just go through life going, well, I believe in Jesus, but I really don't really, I, I don't really trust that he's in control and that, you know, things are going to go well. A couple weeks ago, I was um, outside working in the yard, and I came in and uh, taking a break, washing my face, and I'm walking away 
Um, and I noticed that my socks are wet, like really wet. And I thought, what in the world is that? So I kind of walk back in the bathroom and I look around and I look down at the base of the vanity and there's just water there. And I instantly, like this fear wells up. I don't like plumbing, right? That's just like not my thing. And I'm thinking, oh man, why is there water on the floor? I'm not that messy. And I, so I, I kind of half close my eyes and I open <laughs> the, the doors underneath the vanity and everything's just floating in water, right? And so instantly my fear to sing, I'm like, how long has this been going on and what caused this? And you know, like, is it dripping down in the basement and is there, is there mold in the walls? And will they, well, I don't know if I, I can, can I get a plumber today? And you know, maybe they'll come in and I'll have to tear out the wall or tear out the bathroom or burn down the house. I don't know, because you know, it, like, it's just really easy to go there really quick. It's easy to just, live in fear. This is what Jesus says. You don't need to live like that because he's here. We say it all the time because Jesus is both sovereign and good. He's sovereign. That is, he brings about every single thing that he sets out to do. As theologians say, nothing can frustrate his will, and he is good. He's good God. And when we put those together, he says, we don't need to be afraid. Jesus is bigger than our storms. In fact, it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just that he's bigger than our storms. He is the Lord of our storms. He's in charge of the storms. And if he is in charge of the storms, then that means that we don't nearly, merely need to put up with storms. We don't merely need to endure storms. Like, I just got to get through the storms. It means something more. It means that you and I have the ability to grow in storms, not just endure, not even just persevere, but to grow in storms. So again, some storms are, are the result of dumb things that we do. Some storms are about proximity. Some storms are God's design, but they all have this in common. Jesus can do good things in every single storm that we will ever face in life. I just think there must have been, in the three years that the disciples were with Jesus, there must have been some moments, don't you, don't you think, when they just got comfortable? Maybe they were eating dinner, walking from one town to the next, having a conversation, and they just started to feel comfortable with Jesus, like they just felt like they knew him that well, right? But this is one of those moments where the deity of Christ bursts through in a way that they cannot comprehend, and suddenly he becomes very overwhelming to them. And in that moment, I would suggest that the attitude of the disciples, the perspective just radically changed for them. In Matthew 14, it, it goes on and says this, now, now Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, then he was afraid again. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So a lot of times, you know, John doesn't even give us this story, but uh, Matthew gives us this story. And a lot of times, Peter gets a really bad rap for what happens. You know, it's just Peter, impetuous. He, he jumps first and asks questions later. He, he la and Peter lacks faith, so he starts to sink. And yet, you know, I love what happens here. First of all, notice, Peter isn't impetuous. He doesn't just jump out of the boat. He asks Jesus first, right? Before he jumps, he's like, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. I love that. He's, he's following Jesus' leader, and he wants to do the things that he sees Jesus do. Also, notice the fact that he's the only one who gets out of the boat. It's not like, well, I've done this a few times, so I kind of, you know, he's never done this before. Never stepped over the side of a boat thinking that he will walk on water, and he does it, right? 
I wonder how many of us can say we do that. How many of us could say we're in the habit of when God calls us to do something that we've never done before and looks terrifying to us that, yeah, we would be like Peter and have the courage to step over the edge of a boat onto water that nobody has ever walked on before and then, right, we just do it. But Peter does that. Going on in the story, it says, and, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Now there's a lot of really cool things in this story, but this is the part of the story that just really feels like the point to me. It says that they worshiped him. That, that word worship means to fawn or to, to crouch, to, to lay down. It literally means the idea of a dog licking the hand of its, of its master. It, it, it's to bow down in reverence, it's, it's to adore. I had a thought this week as I was thinking about this passage that when our view of Jesus is small, our worship is going to be very small. Right? Our worship is always going to correspond to the God it is that we, in our minds that we worship. And when Jesus is very small to us, our worship will be very small. Our words will be small, it will be timid, it will be quiet will merely echo the words of songs and prayers and creeds and doctrines. But I think that as we grow in our understanding of who Christ is, as God impresses that upon us and as we grasp it, it truly changes our worship. Our worship will grow as our understanding of God grows. And worship will change from this, you know, kind of, thing we do, I, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, you know, I don't, I, I'm not really into the warm-up thing where we come and sing some songs and warm up for the, you know, the meat of the thing, like singing to God and worshiping God and praying to God isn't the main thing. I think sometimes the problem with our worship isn't that the songs aren't good or it's too loud or it's not loud enough, it's our heart. And one of the ways that God grows our understanding of him is through storms. Yeah, the disciples, they have to face a, a, a question here. What kind of man is this? We thought we knew him. What kind of man could supersede the laws of nature and walk on water and control the weather? Who, who does that? And what would be a reasonable way to respond to a person who could do that? Would we, you know, simply give our lives to Jesus and then use him to get what we want out of life? Or would this be somebody we completely surrender to? Because after all, he's God. He, he can walk on water. Would it be somebody that deserves our trust and our obedience and our worship and our love? Going on in verse 21, it says, and then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So we're not given a lot of details about what happens at the end here. We're, we're told that the disciples were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat arrived at its destination. Some translations will say, actually the word is probably soon. In other words, he, he gets in the boat and you know, before they know it, they're on dry land. But it's been said there are probably actually four miracles that take place in this story. Jesus walks on water. Peter walks on water. Uh, the storm immediately stops when gets in the boat, and the boat immediately reaches its destination. But storms are one of the ways that God grows us. God grows Peter on that day. 
right? Peter walks on water, does something he's never done before. The disciples grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. And the disciples grow as they respond in worship. It, growing a heart of worship is a powerful, life-changing thing. It doesn't just impact what happens in here right before the sermon and after. It, in fact, that's just the smallest part of it. A heart of worship changes the way we wake up in the morning. Right? We don't just wake up in the morning and go, oh, it's another day, oh, it's Tuesday. Oh, I got meetings all day. When you wake up with a heart of worship, you're like, count your fingers and it's all here. Praise God, God gave me another day, right? It's another day to walk with the Lord, a gift from the Lord. When you have a heart of worship, it, it changes the way you wake up in the morning. It, it impacts your relationships and the way you talk to people and think about people, even the difficult people in your life. It changes the way that you think about school and, and experience school and do work and the, the blessings that you get in your life. And it also impacts the way you face storms in life. It's not just something to endure or put up with or why is this happening to me? But it's like God is with me. God is going to do something. J.C. Riley said this in his commentary, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, God uses winter and summer, cold and heat, clouds and sunshine. We don't naturally like this truth. We would rather cross the lake with calm weather and favorable winds with the sun shining down on us, but this is not how we tend to grow spiritually, is it? In James, in fact, it says exactly this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, when you meet storms, of various kinds, right? There's all sorts of storms in life. Why? Why would you count it joy? Why would you see a storm coming and go, woohoo, you know, here we go. Here's why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, here we go, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God uses storms in our life as a process to make us more like Jesus. Here's the problem. We don't usually value that nearly as much as just having a nice calm day. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and go, let's see, I can go this way or this way today. I can have everything go my way the way I like or I can have a storm. Well, I'm gonna, you know, it's a toss-up. No, it's not a toss-up, right? We want the nice, easy day. Why would we be joyful when we wake up today and go, this is gonna be a hard day. I gotta walk through some hard stuff today. Why? Because becoming like Jesus is so important to you, so valuable to you, that you know that God's going to use that situation in a way that he's not going to use it when everything goes right. Think of Abraham and Moses and, and Joseph and David and, and Job. Think of the apostles and think of Paul. A verse that's kind of probably been ringing in your ears all morning as we talk about this is Romans eight twenty eight. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All storms work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together all things work together for good, including all storms. Think about that. All storms. Not just some storms, but every single storm God can use for your good to make you more like Christ. That relational storm that you're going through that doesn't feel redeemable, it is. That vocational storm that you're going through, it is. That health thing that you're going through, but there's a qualifier. It says for those who love God, and who are called. What's he talking about? People who have trusted in Christ. They have a trust relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just know about him, 
We trust him. We trust him with our lives. We trust him with our eternity. We trust him with our sin. We trust him to make us right with God. And we trust him with today. Not just tomorrow. Not just the life after this life. We trust him today. Even in the middle of this storm. So let me just give you a couple of things to think about here as we wrap this up and and take communion. The first is this. It's an obvious one. Jesus says, don't fear. Don't fear because Jesus is always near to us. He, he knows what we're going through. Even if we're in the boat and he isn't in the boat at the moment, he knows what we're going through and he invites us to bring all of our storms to him. All of our worries, all of our difficulties, all of our stresses, to bring it to him in prayer and, and to lay it at his feet. And so my question, number one this morning, is where do you need to stop being afraid and start trusting? Because you can't do them both. You choose one, you choose the other. If you're trusting in Christ, it doesn't make any sense. It's illogical to be afraid because Jesus is near and he is sovereign and he is good. I know I say it all the time. It's like I right, just keep beating that drum. He is sovereign. Nothing frustrates his will. He does everything that he determines to do and he is good. And so we can trust him in our lives to always do good, to always bring about good ends. Where do you need to not be afraid? And the second and last one is this. Where do you need to invite Jesus into the boat? So right, they're, where they're supposed to be, they're, they're going across the sea, but at some point they need to welcome Jesus into that situation, right? To invite him into that thing. So I'm just asking you, is it possible that you're going through something today and you've never actually stopped and just said, oh, I should, I'd probably need to stop rowing and, and working and trying to do all this in my own power and just invite Jesus into the boat. Just invite him to come on in, right? Maybe it's a relational storm you're going through. Maybe there's something you're going through right now, it's with a family member or in, you know, maybe in your marriage or with a sibling or a friend or a coworker or an enemy, you know? And you've been trying and trying and not making any headway and just invite him into the boat. Jesus, come on in, right? You're the Lord of the storm. Maybe it's vocational uncertainty right now. Not sure about your job. You're not sure where it's headed, where it's going. Invite him into that boat. Right? Maybe it's a health storm that you're going through or someone else around you is going through right now. You can invite him into that. Maybe conflict or some kind of financial situation or maybe you're, maybe you're dealing, I've heard this so much from people lately, I'm just, I, I feel like I'm being crushed under all the demands and the, and the responsibilities, and I don't even have time to breathe anymore. And I, that was actually what was, like, that was the context here. They were so busy. Do you feel like that? Do you, you know what happens when we feel like that? When we feel crushed and overwhelmed, we become like no good to the people around us, right? Because we're just so stressed and worried, and we can't bless people anymore because we're just, it's all about us. But what if you invited Jesus into the boat, and what if you trusted him so that you could, right? Because if you trust him, then you can just go ahead and start blessing people again and serving people again. Maybe you're facing a storm because of your faith. Maybe you're living out your faith right now and that's why you're dealing with storms because people are pushing back on that. So how do you do that? How do you invite him in? Well, right, it starts with faith. It starts by trusting in Christ and the person and the work of Christ. 
And then he gives us ways to do it. Scripture says, right, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He gives us ways to take our worries and stresses and storms to him in, in prayer. We can seek his guidance through the word of God that often directs us by applying the word to our storms in life, by seeking wise counsel and, and through worshiping and fellowshipping with other believers. But whatever storm you're going through, here's the thing, you don't have to go through alone because you have a God who is, he's not just a God who can, you know, kind of see storms and figure out what to do with them. He's the Lord of the storms. He's God of the storms. He uses them. I thought it would be great for us to close by taking communion together because communion does this thing where it kind of reminds us where all of this starts for us. And so if, if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the guys are gonna come forward. I wanna encourage you to just take a, a wafer there and take a cup and hold on to that for a minute and I'm gonna kind of set us up for this. So guys, you can come forward and uh, just hold on to those elements. But communion reminds us about where all of this starts. We have a God who is with us, who doesn't just know what we're going through, but he is with us. And he is a God who came to this earth to seek and to save the lost. Because the scripture says God so loved the world. And this is a Savior who would not be sidetracked from doing the hard work of, of redemption. But we're told that Christ goes to the cross. He says nobody took his life from him, he gave it willingly, it was his plan. Where he allowed people to nail him to that cross where he suffered and bled and died. A perfect life sacrificed for us. And scripture tells us that it's through the, the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us that our sin was paid for. And when we trust in Christ, we are given that gift of righteousness. That is, we are right with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking to the church in Corinth and he reminds them why we do this. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me and in the same way he took the cup also after, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on and says this, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So we never just rush into communion. We want to give you some time to, to pray. Maybe to confess. Maybe to thank God for something. Maybe this morning... There are some things that you just, some fear you need to let go of. Right? 
and some ways in which you need to invite Jesus into the boat of what you're going through right now. And holding on to that bread and that cup, is a, it's a great context for doing that. Right? It reminds you how it is that you can do that because you serve a Savior who was crucified on a cross, who was, who was dead, who was buried, and who rose from the dead. That, that's what he says in verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming again. We have a risen Savior who is with us even now. So I want to invite you to, to hold on to the bread and the cup for a moment. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for us. Um, the team's going to come up and um, they'll close us in a song. But between then, I want to give you some time to think and to pray. And then when you're ready, go ahead and take the bread and take the cup. But let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for just six verses, but so powerful for us today. And Father, I, I pray for us. We live in a world that is full of storms. Storms that are raging all around us. And sometimes it's hard not to be afraid. But we are reminded that we have a Savior. We have a God who is both sovereign and is good. That is proven to us on the cross and through the resurrection of Christ. And it, it's not just for someday, it's for today. It has an application for the hard things that we are going through. Now, Father, my prayer for us this morning is that we could hold on to the admonition of Christ, that we be not afraid, but that we trust. And Father, I thank you as we hold the bread and hold the cup, we are reminded that we have a Savior who has conquered sin and conquered death. And we have a God who works all things for our good. We thank you for that today. We thank you for the body and the blood of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Somebody